Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Preston. It's Fat Tuesday. It's Fat Tuesday. It's Mardi Gras. I totally forgot about that until just the words just fell out of this hole under my nose. It is Mardi Gras. You didn't go to church? I didn't go to church. That's. I've totally missed the boat. <laughs> I am not. I am also not going to get completely hammered uh, during the show, which is a change of pace. Wait, but wasn't that part of the agreement? <laughs> Wait, I, I got up early for what? <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're going to be drinking hurricanes. Uh, we got a bunch of beads. I may take my top off. Who knows? Oh. Who knows? And how could anyone possibly leave after you just gave the best teaser to a morning show I've ever heard? Stick around, folks. <laughs> My name is Peter Ogburn. I am here all day with my friend Rebecca Vallis. You're here for the whole show. The whole show, Peter. How how are we going to contain the excellence between the two of us for two whole hours? I think maybe because we both forgot to wear our jean jackets, Peter. <laughs> Listen, you joke. You got jokes. I actually laid my jean jacket out to wear today, and then I didn't wear it because it wasn't that cold out. Yeah, but you wear it under your coat so that you can wear it in studio so that we can guy. make the same joke to each other. I'm not a layers guy. Okay. Oh. I'm not a layers guy. Are jean jackets for warmth or style? Why not both, Ray? <laughs> Why not both? There was a famous moment, clearly not famous enough, or, or you would you would know, uh, where we we were discussing how Peter was wearing a jean jacket, and it was a fashionable jean jacket. I have to say that. What's your heart? It, I mean, it's fashionable. I got it at Lane Bryant. As jean, as jean jackets can be, because they're jean jackets. Yes. Uh, so it's a low bar there, but yes. I, I may have had some choice words for Peter's jean jacket, and I don't. I choose not to let him live it down. I uh, I haven't worn the jean jacket since. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. It was that big of a moment. There was trauma. Uh, are you watching the Winter Olympics? I am totally, completely into the Olympics right now. I always assume I'm going to hate the Olympics, and then they show up, and I watch the Olympics constantly now in fact i make my family watch the olympics with me and yep. last night they were like you need to go to bed now we're all <laughs> tired of watching the friggin olympics just please go to bed you're you're annoying the hell out of all of us the snowboarders last yeah. night yeah well, so here's the thing peter i am a day behind 
So okay. I am living in 1993 where I'm like actually taping things. Now, not with like a video cassette. I am using DVR. <laughs> so maybe okay. I'm in like 2002. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm DVRing and I'm like a day behind. So I just caught up on all the figure skating last night. Okay. And saw like the woman land the triple axel. Remarkable. Which was amazing. There have been three women in the history of the Olympics who have landed the triple axel. And only one American. Only one American, which is the only one that matters. Obviously. And she did it. She did. It was amazing to watch. Uh, spoiler alert, if you didn't watch last night, I know you didn't watch last night, the snowboarders, this Chloe Kim, she's 17 years old, and she's remarkable. Well, see, this is the thing, Peter, right? Like, the Olympics are so much fun, and particularly the Winter Olympics, and I love figure skating. I get super into Tara Lipinski and Johnny yeah. Weir, like, throwing more shade than anyone's yeah, ever thrown yes. on Olympic ice. Uh, that's what I like. It's so fun. But then, as you're watching, there are these moments where it washes over you, the realization that you're watching a 16-year-old who's a bit, who's more accomplished at 16 than you'll ever be in yeah. your life. Yeah. And I have to say, there's so there's, like, a simultaneous experience of total fun and binging and also like super under accomplishment that I've been experiencing. I know. No, like if there was an Olympics for huffing paint fumes behind the convenience oh, mark, you'd be there. I would have I would have nailed that when I was 16. Yeah. I would have nailed that. But these people are flying through the air and and landing normally in defiance of God's will and getting gold medals for it. Good for them. Did Good you see the skater, the the Russian one, the young Russian one? She's like 15 years old. Oh, my God. And she was like, she was skating like I've never seen It's before, unbelievable. Right? It's unbelievable. Well, we got a great, great show coming up. Uh, it's Peter Ogwin and Rebecca Vallis. Rebecca is the host of the Off Kilter podcast. We'll be talking about so, so much, including the budget, which we got to look at yesterday. Wah, wah. <laughs> Very quick break. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Happy February 13, Tuesday. Not just any Tuesday. It's a fat Tuesday. All day long. Uh, gosh, you know, Mardi Gras just doesn't have the same appeal that it once did for me. I'm not drinking much anymore. Uh, so I'm going to have some nice broth tonight and go to bed at 8.30. Broth, Peter? Really? I don't actually. I, don't actually I, do I know, but like the pendulum went from yeah. like hurricanes yeah. to like broth. Broth. You went. You became this like ascetic monk. Yeah. Right? Broth like, and some leafy greens. That's I, all right. I barely even know who I'm talking to <laughs> right now. Is Peter? Is Peter coming in at some point today? Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill Press today, and joining me for the entire show. Here with me, hosting the show, Rebecca Vallis. She is the host of Off Kilter Podcast, which you can find on iTunes and anywhere that you consume your great podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Peter, or or someone who's pretending to be Peter who <laughs> drinks broth and leafy greens at night. Um, I'm not actually going to have any broth. I feel a lot better. Broth is yet. a little high in sodium. I don't. I can't have broth. Will you wear a sarong though? You know what? Uh, the sarong is for the summer. Uh, Pair it with a jean jacket. All right, here's the deal. We need to be filled in on the story. All right, here's the deal. I had to warn 
uh, Jamie and Monty uh, when we went to the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia because when I am at home for the evening, I put on a sarong. He, he remembers. <laughs> I, I put on a sarong. Now, here's the thing. I'm listening. Here's the thing. It's winter months now, so don't wear the sarong. That's crazy. That would be crazy. <laughs> With the jean jacket for no both jean jacket. style no and jean. warmth. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's right. That's right. A, a sarong with a jean jacket. That's quite a look. I don't wear the it's sarong. It's called fashion. Look I, it up, Peter. I have an announcement to make. During the winter months, it's not a sarong. <clears throat> it's a caftan. You say caftan? Caftan? Ca- is it caftan? It's a caftan. It's a caftan. I wear a caftan. I mean, if you're going to wear it in a whole season of days, I think you should probably learn how to pronounce it. Is it, ca- is it it's, caftan? It's caftan. I'm as a caftan fan. Are you a caftan myself. fan? Myself. I am a caftan fan. I'm a caftan fan. Uh, you're a caftan fan. <laughs> we've, we've established this. But hey, potato, potato. Yeah. I am super pro caftan. Yeah. And here's, Peter, I feel like we're learning so much about each other today because guess what I wear when I'm at home? What? It's not a sarong. Okay. It's a robe. Now, here's the thing. It's For, not totally just, foreign concept to me. What is this you speak of? Not just one robe. I have a little bit of a robe thing. So I actually have like two dozen robes. Get out of here. I what are you talking what? about? Anyone who knows me knows. You wear multiple robes? It's, not at one time. No, not at one time, but sometimes in the same evening. It's called <laughs> it's called robe life. Robe life, Peter. And I, and l- let me explain why it might be uh, multiple robes in one night. Because you get home. Yeah. It's late. You got to throw something on. Sure. You want to take off the clothes from the day. You put on, say, the, uh, the medium temperature robe that makes sense because you're you know you want to be inside and be comfortable inside but then like a little time goes by right and maybe it's like 11 maybe it's 12 you're curling up on the couch watching some olympics some sure. winter olympics looking chilly because you're seeing all the snowboarding and figure skating <laughs> you want the warmer robe peter you want the cushy plush robe that you can cuddle into that's almost like a blanket and there you go with your robe change you're not wrong i do i have one robe that frankly it's a little hot it's a little hot. You so in the winter this. months, though, I, I'll wear it sometimes, but usually I'm, I'm a caftan man. You're a caftan man. Well, and I like caftans. I like. I usually wear them on the beach. Sure. Um, which might be too predictable and expected for you, um, but <laughs> but I but I support them. I support this caftanship that All we right. apparently have. All right. So I uh, <clears throat> I'm not wearing a caftan. I'm not wearing my sarong today. Um. I want to ask you about, God, there's so much news just going on constantly, right? Like, it's just... So much news happening. It's just unbelievable. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's just just so much to digest. But there was, like, a a, a nice moment yesterday, not long after the end of yesterday's program, where we got a look at the Obama portraits. They Mm -hmm. were unveiled yesterday. This was such a nice moment. It's like, and I know that, like, look, I had plenty of problems with Barack Obama's presence. There's plenty of people did for different reasons, sure. right? But I, o- overall, um, those were good times. It's hard not to miss the guy. I know. Just period. But also, like, especially when Washington is a big, huge dumpster fire it's, every single second. It's just horrible. Yeah. And it, it, it also was, yesterday was a, kind of a, an interesting reminder of how we can get so, uh, uh, like outraged over nothing, right? So the Obamas unveiled their new portraits, uh, which were done by two contemporary African American artists, and they were different. They were a different kind of portrait. Now, yeah. uh, we've got some photos of them. If, you, if you're just listening, uh, you could. I mean, you've probably seen them, but if you're watching, we've got them up. Um, 
I'll say this. Both of them very, very different. I think that Barack Obama's was awesome. And when we look back, it'll be like, wow, this was a real break from, uh, uh, you know, tradition mm-hmm. of having these sort of very boring. It was almost even like folding in a femininity. Yeah, that sure. Many portraits do not do. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. It was, um, it was a nice break from the sort of pale male stale. Right kind of feel right that brooks brothers suit yeah exactly yeah all that standing at a totally standing different. at a desk if you haven't seen it it's him uh surrounded by flowers yep uh which the artist kehinde wiley said uh, he actually chose flowers from the lands that barack obama has has covered right like either kenya or hawaii or even chicago those are those make up the, the sort of background of the portrait um michelle obama's I have an issue with. Have really? With. Tell because me Because it doesn't look like her. Okay. I thought the same thing. The face wasn't quite her. It's not her at all. But is it? I, I'm just sort of left wanting to say, like, similar to how you were just describing, and positively, the fact that, that, that uh, Barack Obama's portrait, right, is, is a break from tradition. Yes. Is, the, is that maybe intentional? Is this, was this attempted to be a portrait that was seeking verisimilitude, or was this attempted to be, uh, attempting to be a portrait that was maybe not quite? I don't know. That's a good point. I mean, I, I think that I like everything about the portrait except for the fact that it doesn't look like her, which I think is kind of the goal of any portrait. <laughs> well, it depends on the artist, right? I mean, sure. I think I... Picasso might disagree with you. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. No, we'll I think I might there. agree with Rebecca. I thought about this a lot, and I think that maybe it's playing on this idea of how the world sees her versus how she sees herself versus mm. how she truly is. Okay. Um, I think that there are lots of layers of that, including the fact that she was painted with gray skin, yes. not brown skin. Which is, which is, yeah. So clearly it was an attempting picture-like quality. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, so I, I you know what? I'm going to say A-plus comments just made not by Peter. <laughs> that's a very, <laughs> that's a very, very eloquent way of saying, way of saying, you're wrong, Peter. <laughs> I have to say, my favorite part of the whole portrait unveiling, though, was how much fun Twitter had with him. Oh, my God. Right? And so there was one, and I, I don't remember who to give credit to for this, but one of the uh, spoofs of the of the Barack Obama portrait had Sean Spicer walking yes. through the bushes. Yes. Right? Like, and, and it had had Obama being like, Sean, really? <laughs> <laughs> Which was, like, amazing. Hats off to whoever did that one. You know what I really enjoyed yesterday uh, on, on Twitter were, like, all of the people who are showing the various uh, sort of, uh, not I don't want to say weird, but unconventional portraits from politicians past. Like Jerry Brown, the first time he was in office in the 1970s, he had a very unconventional portrait. And when you go back and look at it, like it really, it, it held up. I don't think I've seen that one. It's really cool. I'll, I'll pull it up. I'll, I'll show you. Um, and Gerald Ford, he had an official portrait, but he also had this bust where... He looks like a shaved gorilla. You know, he had like a he had like a really weird face and they really sort of emphasized his his uh gorilla-like qualities. I mean, if the gorilla fits, I don't know. I don't I don't, I really there's nothing I can actually say right now, Peter, that's going to be appropriate. But it but I liked it. I liked them. Yeah. So like I think that we'll look back in 20 years, 30 years time and we'll look at the Obama portrait and say like 
This was a good idea. This well, was good. It's only fitting that a president who, you know, changed everything. Yes for the presidency and broke every tradition and stereotype and, and all in really positive, really forward-looking ways, right, would also be the first president to break with tradition when it comes to the portrait. So I, I say I say right on. Yeah, I'm all for it. All right, so we've got a big, big, biggity, big, big show today. Uh, the president has uh, released his budget. Uh, Rebecca and I are going to talk about that a little later on in the program. Also, we'll be talking to Jessica Schulberg from HuffPost. She's the foreign affairs reporter to talk about the Democratic memo and uh, lots of other uh, good stuff, including a deep dive into the deep state. What's actually going on with the deep state? I feel like you need music there, right? <laughs> the ominous yeah. organ music. Yeah. Whenever, or Jaws, <laughs> just Jaws music. Deep state. Uh, so we're going to talk all about that, and then uh, in the 8 o'clock hour, in the second hour of the program, we'll be talking to Jack Jenkins. He is a reporter with Religion News Service, formerly of Think Progress, formerly from the Center for American Progress. Uh, but he'll be here to talk about the big prayer breakfast that Donald Trump uh, went to attend last week. I just, I, we'll talk about this more with Jack, but like, I have uh, fundamentalist Christian parents. And, I don't think I knew that about you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it explains a lot. Right? And they also voted for Donald Trump. I also did not know this about you, Peter. Yeah. So we've had lots of conversations about religion and Donald Trump. Uh, and I'll, we'll get into it a little bit with Jack. But, like, you've got the most hedonistic man to ever hold the office Who's running around talking about how much he loves two Corinthians, and it's just unbelievable. Well, it's also, it's just, it's yet more of the, like, great-sounding rhetoric that has nothing to do right. with any of the dude's actions, right? right? Like, every, I mean, let's, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, right, yeah. with an actual expert, but I yeah. have some things to say. Well, I want to I start off uh, today talking about uh, the Rob Porter situation. We've talked about it a lot this week, yeah. and, and rightfully so, I think, because Bill made a good point yesterday in saying that this scandal, whatever you want to call it, this situation, uh, is 100% the making of the Trump White House. Yep. And Donald Trump, nobody else, has anybody that they can throw this back onto, which is kind of remarkable because I, I've, I've said that this is Donald Trump's true skill is sort of dodging blame and hiding behind shields of, oh, yeah. of other people. The dude is total Teflon. Nobody, Total, totally. Nobody has figured out how he does it right. at this point. And so this is an interesting situation where they created this, and now they have to live with it, and they can't say, well, the media is making this up because they're not. It's, I mean, the allegations are out there, and we've seen evidence photographic evidence of Rob Porter beating his ex-wife. Yeah, but Peter, you say this like photographic evidence matters to this administration, <laughs> right? This true. is the dude who was like, you know, pictures lie about the inauguration. <laughs> I had way more people than the pictures showed, right? right? Like that's, The pictures were wrong. That's like, that's what this administration, I mean, alternative facts, they invented it, right? Yeah. So like, why should they care that there are pictures? I want to I wanna play a couple of clips because this has sort of been brewing uh, well, it's been brewing for a while now since Trump took office, and they didn't give Rob Porter a security clearance because he had these problems. But yesterday, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had to come out and face the press because uh, 
she was on vacation last week when Raj Shaw uh, came out and addressed the press uh, in the press briefing, and he said we could have done a better job, which apparently made Trump very upset because any sort of admitting yep. that you screwed up is a sign of weakness and therefore bad. And so Sarah Huckabee Sanders had to come out yesterday and clean up the mess. And so the White House press corps, rightfully so, are still asking about Rob Porter. And first of all, uh, Huckabee Sanders says uh, that they take domestic violence very, very seriously. Very, very seriously. The president and the entire administration take domestic violence very seriously and believe all allegations need to be investigated thoroughly. Above all, the president supports victims of domestic violence and believes everyone should be treated fairly and with due process. Okay, see, that actually uh, confused me at first because when they said <laughs> that they take it very, very seriously, I thought that they meant, like, that's one of the top qualities we look for when we hire people in the White House. Oh, yeah, domestic violence <laughs> is a top priority for this administration. Yes. Increasing it in every way yes. that they can is something they are committed to doing. <laughs> so it's one of the top things we look for when we hire people. It's here. also borne out in their policies, 100%. Right? I mean, like, case in point, right? I mean, uh, Betsy DeVos, the uh, uh, notorious Secretary of Education, one of her first acts in that position was actually to roll back really important protections for survivors of domestic violence and, and sexual assault on college campuses, right? Yeah. Literally making college campuses safer for people who commit sexual assault. And that's just that we see that throughout the administration. I mean, it was like a couple weeks into the, to Trump's uh, administration, and he started saying, maybe Maybe he wanted to eliminate the Violence Against Women Act right programs that actually helped survivors of domestic violence. So clearly, increasing domestic violence yeah. is actually a priority, that's a priority of this administration. For them. Yeah, no, that's definitely a priority for the priority for them. You know, it, it's just like there are certain things that you just didn't think that a politician could get away with in this day and age. And I hate to sound, I'm not trying to be too Pollyanna about it and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> my stars and goddess, I never could imagine that we would have something like this. Like, I know that there are terrible people uh, who are in, uh, who hold public office. Someday right? you're going to make it back to Tara, Peter. <laughs> Don't you worry. My heavens, get my fainting couch before I fall out over here. Uh, I would do the whole rest of the show in that accent yeah, right. if you want. If you did it, I would do it. Game of chicken right now. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. I just don't think I could do it. Let the record reflect I was committed. Give me a little more bourbon, maybe I could do mm -hmm. it. But I, I, I can't do it sober. Next time. Um, but, like, to just blatantly come out here and... I don't want to I don't want to be too strong here. Like, I don't want to say they're defending domestic violence, because it's not what they're doing, but they're certainly allowing it. And... Um, and letting it sort of happen. I don't know that there's a huge difference. To be right? Totally honest. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know why I'm parsing words here. Like I don't know why I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Of course, they're allowing it to happen by ta by tacitly condoning. Yeah. This kind of unacceptable behavior, right? And in the wake of the the Me Too revolution, right? At yeah. that, it, that's this. That to me, at least, that's the same thing as effectively supporting it. Yeah, uh, she went on to talk about uh, how they just learned about the Rob Porter situation. We learned of the extent of the situation involving Rob Porter last Tuesday evening. Okay, and within twenty four hours. That's not true. That's not true. That is patently false. We it's know that. just not true. 
Like this has been going on for a long, long time, and the and the blame falls at the feet of Don McGahn uh, and John Kelly, who've known about this. Don McGahn knew about it a year ago. John Kelly's known about it for at least several months. Um, and again, I, I don't want to take away from the fact that the man is a domestic abuser because that alone is uh, enough to not get a job in the White House. Correct. But to take it one step further, because of that, he didn't get a security clearance. And so this is the guy that hands stuff to the president, right? Like, President Vallis, here is your presidential briefing for the day. I hand it to you, and yet I am, like, not clear to do that. Except there's something wrong with what you just said, which was presidential briefing of the day, <laughs> right, which we right. now learned doesn't actually happen every day. Right. The daily or briefing. At all. Why would the daily <laughs> briefing happen daily? Sorry, I digress. Right. Oh, I have to read these words? No, but you're, you're making a really important point, right? We know that they knew because that was a part of why he didn't get a security clearance, right? So yeah. clearly they knew, and it was not, you know, 24 hours ago or whatever the heck they're claiming. Do you remember... During uh, Barack Obama's presidency in, like, 2014, it was his second term, I forget where he was speaking. I think it was Atlanta. It was Atlanta. He spoke in Atlanta, and after the uh, speech or before the speech won, he got into an elevator with a security contractor who had a gun. On him, I vaguely remember this. All right, this was like a, this was like an outrage uh, du jour back then. This is this is what we had to get outraged about about back there then. There was the tan suit, yes, and there was this, and then there was this. So this guy was a contractor who had an, a, a weapon on him, and it turns out he had an arrest record. And uh, Barack Obama was not told about it. They, he just sort of slipped through, and he was in an elevator with the president of the United States with a gun, and he had an arrest record. And people lost their friggin' minds. And by the way, kind of rightfully so. Like, I, I see why that's a problem. And, and, boy, was that cute and quaint. I mean, I, I sort of want to put my head in my hand and go, memories. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Ah, the good old days, right. back when we could get outraged about this Well, that's stuff. what passed for a scandal. No, but you're making you're making a great point, right? And and, and I would add, right, I mean, there, there are important protections uh, f- around what people with certain types of criminal records are able to do professionally, right? But that's also something where one in three Americans now has some type of record, including arrest records. And I don't know, if you looked at me and you looked at you, Peter, we, you know, and we looked, brought one other person in the room. Room. One yeah. of us, one of us would have a record. I'm not saying whose hand would go up. One of our hands would go up, right? Statistically, one out of three people. Statistically, yes, yes, right, yes, yes. Right, and and so just putting a, a, fla- a plant, planting a flag in that for later. All right. So when Rob Porter left, Donald Trump went way out of his way to tell everybody what a great man he is and what a great job he did, and he wished him well. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this yesterday. Why did he uh, wish him well? And Sarah Sanders said, quote, the president wants the best for all Americans. The president hopes all Americans can be successful in whatever they do, end quote. How do you say that 
with a straight face. I'm sorry. This is this is the sound of like my mind totally exploding. We have duct tape. We can get get some duct tape <laughs> and let's duct tape her head so that it doesn't explode here on air. Please just hold it together. That's all I need you to do. I might need popsicle sticks too. It's, <laughs> it's bad. It's bad, Peter. I just can't with that, right? It's it's so. Of course he wishes him well. He wishes literally every human everywhere well. Except for those sons of bitches that play in the NFL, as he called them. Or immigrants. Or immigrants. Or literally anybody who isn't, you know, pasty white. Yeah. I think that's what we've learned today. <sighs> that's an amazing quote. And you know what You know what? What really bothers me is it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Like, what's going to happen when, like, the next time that the president says something horrible... And they're going to say to Sarah Huckabee Sanders or whoever it is that's standing up there at the time, well, I thought that you said that the president, quote, hopes all Americans can be successful in what they do. And they'll just they'll squirm out of it. Well, I or, mean. No, they don't have to be held to account at all. No. And also just, I think, again, and that you're sort of getting at this with what you were saying, right? This is just, it's a huge distraction, right, from, from everything that's going on right now. Yeah. And that's what this administration thrives on, yeah. is one scandal to another scandal. It's a 24-second news cycle, right, that nobody can break through with the stuff that actually matters. Let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think that, that that, as you said, the 24-second news cycle, which I'm going to steal now, that's great. Well, I stole it from my boss near a tandem, okay. so you're stealing it from her, just so you know. If you're stealing from me, you're stealing twice. <laughs> um do you think that's by design, or do you think that's just total ineptitude? So I am perhaps in the minority okay. when I say this, but I think it's totally by design. Do I you? Okay. I think that this administration and this president runs on chaos theory. Yes. That it is totally crazy like a fox. That it is, it, it, he, he learned, I think, through his own bombast over his career, the ability that he has to earn media, yeah. right? And he perfected it throughout the campaign, um, not just through his constant appearances on television, right? The guy didn't even have to pay for commercials. He no. was just on Why TV all the time, and particularly on Fox all the time. But he, he perfected it on Twitter, Right. Yeah. He perfected the art of saying things that are so explosive and so unprecedented and so beyond the pale that everybody like moths to a flame in the in the mainstream media just yeah. right onto whatever his latest tweet is. And then he could do whatever he wants on the you know, with the other hand. Right. While everyone's paying attention to his tiny other hand that's clutching his Blackberry or whatever <laughs> he uses to tweet with. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Seriously, I think that's what's going on. And I think a lot of folks underestimate him and give him not nearly enough credit for doing this all by design. I think, I don't disagree with you. I think it's a little bit of both, frankly, because I, I, I think you're right. He has a history of doing this. And I think that, not to hammer on a theme uh, of, of this morning of how great it was to have Barack Obama as president compared to Donald Trump, but you know any other politician, let's say Barack Obama, right? Barack Obama, no drama Obama, right? He didn't like this crap. He didn't like the chaos. He liked to have a handle on things. He liked to be in control of things um, and would never have allowed this chaos to reign in the White House. Whereas Donald Trump, I think that's just his sweet spot. And so we think it was so cute and quaint with everybody was going like, oh, the heat's turned up. He's not going to be able to take this much longer. And people were thinking that Trump is going to resign. 
He's not going to resign because he's stressed out. Are you kidding me? Well, there also, there were so he many points it. during the campaign, right? We were so innocent then during the campaign. Yeah. There were so many points where people said, man, this one, this is the line. This is the one. This is the line. He's crossed this line. He can't go back after this. This is the one that will take him down. And we learned there was no line. I think the no closest line. he got no was when he mocked the disabled reporter at the New York Times, Serge Kovaleski, for, um, uh, he was flapping his arms in the air at a campaign rally mocking this guy right and and people went whoa maybe this dude not a cool dude and still he came back from that and that's probably the closest he came to actually not being totally made out of teflon you know what you know what my take is on that whole thing which i think it's it's sad that we've forgotten so much of the terrible stuff that he said during the campaign because we can't we don't have space we in can't our keep brains up with it. We, yeah, exactly i mean how in the world can we remember every horrible thing he said but donald trump had already done a very uh good job of convincing his base and convinc- convincing a lot of american voters that the media is bad the media is terrible the media is out to get me the media hates you and by the time that he got around to mocking a disabled reporter who cares because the yeah. media is bad and he i mean he survived that Remarkably. Gosh, we've got so much more to talk about. We need to take a very quick break. Uh, Jessica Schulberg from HuffPost will be joining us here uh, in just a couple of moments. Uh, Stay with us. It's Rebecca Vallis from the Off Kilter Podcast and me, Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Preston. By the way, remember to follow us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll take a very quick break. We'll be right back. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Press Show, 35 minutes past the hour. My name is Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill Press today. By the way, don't forget, we have our podcast up every day right after the show. You get it on iTunes. You can get it uh, wherever you get your fine, fine podcasts. Uh, Just go look for the Bill Press Show. Make sure you subscribe so you get it delivered right to your... uh, computer or phone or whatever you listen to right to your door right to your door door. (laughs) that's where i thought we're like amazon prime yeah we drone deliver the podcast to you yeah it'll show up at your doorstep hi everybody is that your podcast is that an incentive or 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 not (laughs) it depends do you show up in a caftan we had a conversation earlier because uh i i during the summer months i wear a sarong when i'm at home for the day Mm -hmm. and then during the winter months i wear a caftan when I'm at home for the day. Hmm. And people were, you know. I'd, I'd just like to pause and and, and make I, sure that you got that reaction, which was, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reaction I'm going for. That's the reaction I was going for. Huh. Definitely what I wanted to picture at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> huh. It's all right. It's okay. I'm all right with that. I'm very there was also a jean jacket involved, but that's a long that's story. That's a long jean story. Yeah. That's a long, long story. Uh, joining us uh, in studio for the entire show is Rebecca Vallis. She hosts the Off Kilter podcast. And joining us here in studio is Jessica Schulberg. She is from HuffPost. Hi, Jessica. Hello. I like to surround myself with wonderful women whenever I host the show. <laughs> uh, not unlike the way that a donut surrounds an empty, vacuous hole. With wonderful goodness, like you all, so slash women who are smarter than you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's 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 actually it's a good plan for good content. <laughs> I like the way that after you said that, both of you took a sip of your hot beverages, <laughs> your morning beverages. Smart woman here reporting for duty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jessica, I, I, 
First of all, my favorite slash scariest story was the story that sort of I thought was just a trial balloon last week that turned out to be kind of serious. We might be having a military parade. Donald yeah. Trump wants a military parade. He wants a friggin' military he parade. He really wants one. And I have to say, like, <sighs> there have been a lot of low points of the Trump presidency. Many, many low points of <laughs> the Trump presidency. But that this was a, a particularly low one for me. Really? Because yeah, it was, and I know that it might sound There's weird. Some, like, supporting kids who are like dying of cancer. Nope. No, nope. no. This is where. This fun. was this. T- this to me was like, wow. This is so. And I'm not trying to wave a flag here, right? But this is not an American thing. And he and, and he says he got this idea from the, a military parade in France, which like, look, France fought wars on its turf like in its for country such a long time. for such <laughs> a long time and we talk about the youth of america right like how young we are as a country and like it's actually pronounced youths the youths of america youths. thank you thank you very yeah. much i did just rewatch my cousin Vinny <laughs> recently in case that was not okay, did readily you just apparent. say youths <laughs> um and like Granted, we are in a war right now with Afghanistan and probably forever forever so, yeah, yeah. And so, like, it's not – I guess it's hard to point to a big military victory, right? Like, if there's a big military victory and the troops come home and we have a parade for the troops, okay. Like, I still find it a little grotesque, but right. okay. Okay. But this is for no other reason other still than to just – bombing seven countries with yeah. no end in sight. Right. <laughs> retweet, retweet if you like it. Right. Ticker tape yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is uh, the really just way to stroke Donald Trump's ego. Yeah. Is it going to happen? I kind of feel like I it's going to happen. I kind of think it's definitely going to happen. I mean, really? he's wanted this since literally like before he became president. He wanted this at his inauguration. He was asking the Pentagon, like, what kind of military vehicles can we have here? And they're oh like, my God. Uh, sir, we don't normally do that. It's more like, you know, the color guard. We can have some flags waving around, like a band if you want. But, like, we don't usually send the tanks and the missile launchers to the inauguration. Oh, my God. And so that was, you know, December, January of 2016, 2017, he wants this. Yeah. Uh, then he goes to France for Bastille Day. When's that? That's, like, in the spring? Summer, something like that. Something like that. It's even I more it's excited. July. I want to say I from say French July. class okay. a million years ago good, that I good, feel good. like the, it was July. Summer. Correct. It's the Summer. 4th of July. Yes. They that's celebrate exactly. America's independence. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's correct. Thank you. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, God, this is this is perfect. Because before everyone was saying, oh, you're such a kook. This is like what people do in North Korea and Russia. And now he's got a perfectly respectable Western democracy to point to and say, hey. The French do it. Why can't I do it? God. Um, yeah, I think this is definitely going to happen. I think well, they might try to find some. I think what happens with the Trump administration is he latches on to this like completely crazy idea, and people around him know that there's not much of a point in being like, "Sir, you can't do that." <laughs> so instead, right. they're like, "Why don't we do this other like kind of crazy but much less crazy thing and make it seem like it was all your idea?" I could see this happening not in D.C., maybe happening somewhere where we already have a lot of this equipment. We already have a lot of troops who are ready to march around in circles around Trump. Uh, maybe somewhere where the roads aren't quite so 
delicate and swampy and yeah. cold and fragile. I mean, that would be a mess. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like parenting 101, right? right? And I say this not as a parent. I am a parent of four my children. Cats. My cats are. My cats are my children, as people who know me know me. I'm but, a parent, but I'm a terrible parent. So go ahead. So neither of us is actually qualified to say what I'm about to say. But it seems to me, from my friends who have children, young children, parenting 101 is not about giving your kid an option of right. whether or not they're going to do something. It's about, do you want the red pants or the blue pants? Because pants, whether or not to wear pants, that's not an option. It's about which color. So I love like I bet what- Melania does that every morning. Donald, <laughs> <laughs> do you want the blue pants or the navy pants? I have to wear blue pants today. And he's like, no, I want the parade. And she's like, okay. Just put on the pants. Okay, just put on the pants. Well, the thing with the parade was the story came out and I was like, well, this is, like I said, a trial balloon. And it seemed to be a trial balloon from someone who didn't necessarily think it was a great idea. And as we are wont to do, Twitter destroyed it and said this is a terrible idea. And then the next day, here come the Republicans be like, this is a great idea. And I was like, Lindsay, God, I love military stuff. Let's do it. What is happening? They're like, Even Mattis said the next day or the day after, he says, well, we've put together a couple of different plans, and we're sending them up to the White right. House for review. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to have this happen. Senator Kennedy, I will say, had a had a pretty funny quote. It was something along the lines of, like, this will make us look really dumb and insecure, but said in a more yeah. Southern Republican type of way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. But I, it's, it's all, isn't it all kind of a metaphor, right, for, for the larger conversation that we're having as a country, right? I mean, and, and particularly that Republicans are having, yeah. right? Because when you think about what this is going to cost, like how much is this parade even going to cost? Okay, I can, I can give you some numbers on this. Yeah. So the last time that we had a, a military parade was in 1991. At the time, they said that it cost $12 million, which is BS, yeah. by the way. Like that's what it might have cost on like for the city to have a military parade, but that is not the total cost. Now if you add inflation for that, you get up to like twenty two million. Which again, total BS. Like that might be what it costs the city to contain a parade like that, but you're talking about flying and transporting giant war machines from all over the world to right here. I have to say, I, I think like all the the outrage over the cost like i don't care I don't right I, I the mean, military I, spends so much money on so much dumb stuff every day that it's like 20 million like they won't even notice it that's a fair like, point yeah, it's pretty upsetting but like it's just so hard for me to take seriously a debate on like curbing unnecessary military spending like yeah that's something we should probably get around to we I should care about not that doing this is gonna fix it exactly we should care about that the other 364 days of the year too right, right? I, like I the military say, like, spends too much full stop all the time I will say that, it, aside to the, the spending part of it, I mean, I, I talked to a bunch of people, current, and what do you think? Like, is this cool? Are you excited? Do you want to you show off how big and badass our military is? And granted, I think it's like a self-selecting pool of people who will answer a phone call from the Huffington Post. But every <laughs> single person I talked to said, like, this is really dumb. You know, the people who can operate this type of heavy machinery are active combat duty troops who are either preparing yeah. to get deployed or they just got back. This isn't like your reserve guys. This isn't, you know, just like not anyone can drive a tank. And why the hell would you take us off of a training cycle when we're preparing to go to war and say, hey, can you spend a week practicing marching in a straight line? Because that's how long it would take. These guys don't spend a lot of time practicing marching anymore to actually make this thing look good. It would take so much time and effort, and it's just kind of ridiculous. I'm the candidate that's going to say, 
the military should spend more time marching <laughs> and practicing their drills right. rather than like you know bombing wedding parties. You're gonna give them all Fitbits. Yes, that's your plan. Gotta get those ten thousand steps yeah. in. Fam. We just, Peter, we just figured out your platform. That's it. When you run for president, which by the way, <laughs> I would pay to see because that would be fun. I would yeah. actually Anyone work on do it these yeah. days. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I am. There. This is me committing here and now. I would run your campaign, Peter. Oh, bless your heart. If you ran, well, just because it would be fun. Right? How much fun would we have trying to make you marketable as a presidential candidate? On your leaked emails, I would love nothing more. Oh, <laughs> that would be bad. So no, now, no now you have you have your campaign manager, and you have like a reporter who wants to write the the, the leaked stories. Yeah. This is great. This yeah. is the makings of something. A right Fitbit here. on every soldier's <laughs> hip and a chicken in every pot. That's my platform. But I have that. I, I, I'm I'm going to put that aside for a second because I think we should discuss off air what our plans look like and and get right, our sure. calendars out. Fair. But but Fair. I actually I'm going to be the person who says we do have to care about military spending and here's why and why I was saying that I think this parade is is basically a metaphor for what Republicans are are, are doing right now um, and I feel like we have to have this conversation especially given that that Trump just put out his latest budget blueprint right yeah. showing his priorities for the country it has become like Republican gospel that we never have enough money for the military no matter how much money we're throwing at it there's never enough it's never well funded enough and the to, the, to say anything other is unpatriotic and doesn't support our troops, right? But then on the other hand, we we as a country, we just don't have enough money for, to feed poor seniors through Meals on Wheels, right? Or to make sure that all kids have lunch so that they can actually eat and be, you know, not starving so they can't focus in the classroom, right? Or so that seniors, we don't have enough money for Social Security, seniors, right, uh, should be retiring in poverty and, and sitting on the, on the sewer grate, right, being homeless after they've worked their whole lives because we we just can't afford Social Security, right? right? These are all actual things that Republicans are saying we can't afford and that Trump's budget says we can't afford and proposes huge cuts to or even eliminates, right? Um, and a huge part of, of, what, of the hypocrisy there is we can never, no matter how much money we throw at the military, be funding that well enough is what they will have us believe. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I definitely think it's ridiculous that we don't actually make any realistic attempt to constrain military spending. I guess my argument is just more that like, even if we don't do this parade and even if we do get the military into a sane budget, that money is not going to trickle down to feed poor kids Fair. or no. poor seniors. No, and that's, of course, I mean, it's like a bad faith argument for the Republicans to be arguing that this is actually about how much money we have, whether or not we have enough money to feed kids versus whether or not we have enough money to be prepared for war. I mean, yeah. Uh, I want to switch gears because you've been writing about the uh, the Battle of the Memos. There's a Republican memo that Devin Nunes put out that the White House immediately loved, loved and it. put out into the public. Um, what, let me just ask you first of all, before we move on to the Democrats' response memo or, or, or their side of the story, where does that – where does this GOP memo leave us? Because I do think that this is exactly what Trump wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Devin Nunes enabled that to happen. And no matter what happens from here on out, whatever Mueller finds or anything else, right, like Donald Trump will be able to point to this memo and say, but see, but see. So how effective is that going to be? <laughs> Well, first, we should start out by saying that this memo was authored by the staff in Devin Nunes' office. Yeah. Devin Nunes uh, was a member of Trump's transition team. 
He is this guy from Central California. It's not at all clear how he has any experience or background relevant to being the head of the House Intelligence Committee, but here we are. Here we are. Here we are. But here we are. Um, Broadcasting Nunes, live from hell. Devin Nunes was supposedly recused from the whole Russia investigation because last year he had this very elaborate, strange ploy where he said, look, I have all this intelligence that was given to me by an unnamed source that shows that Trump was illegally spied on by the Obama administration. It turned out he got all this intelligence from the White House, from yeah. the Trump White House. Yeah. Anyways, this guy was supposed to have nothing to do with the Russia investigation. He hasn't read any of the underlying intelligence that went into making this memo. Um, but all of a sudden, he comes out with this other like bombshell revelation um, that he swears this time he didn't work with the White House on. He says <laughs> this is all his own doing. Um, it's this four-page memo that the committee voted to release. Trump okayed the release. And it basically says that... The Obama administration should not have spied on Carter Page, who has already been on the FBI's radar since 2013 because the Russians were trying to recruit him as a spy. <laughs> Shouldn't have spied on this guy when he became a Trump campaign official um, because some of the intelligence used to get the application to spy on him came from the so-called Steele dossier. Um, and that when the FBI and the DOJ were applying for the surveillance warrant, they didn't adequately explain that they had information from a from a partisan source from from this guy who is being funded by the Democrats and therefore this entire operation is illegal the Obama <laughs> administration is part of this deep state effort to undermine the Trump campaign and the whole Trump Russia investigation is insane okay as you just laid out the whole Nunes memo is flimsy at best it's three and a half pages yeah, i mean i was right. kind of grateful because normally when there's these big like friday night document dumps you're like oh god how do i read through like 200 pages of like really intense deeply sourced material this but was not in the trump era this was right, not right. this i'm like really like that's that's i guess i'll oh, start thanks. writing it like it's already in bullet form yeah, thanks exactly. guys <laughs> i know this is a total tangent but i, I remember the uh, the bill hicks bit where he talks about how he was doing stand-up in the south and he's uh he's reading a book in a diner, and then the waitress comes up and just goes, well, 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 looks like we got ourselves a Rita. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think of Donald Trump all the time. Like He'd probably see somebody reading a book and be like, well, 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 looks like we got ourselves a Rita. But it's like, do you remember the picture that they that Trump was getting flack for like not working during the government shutdown, right? And after the shutdown that he caused, yeah. and there was that was picture. Like, oh, his papers, and he's like, I'm working. <laughs> but there was a picture of him at his desk at, in the Oval, but there wasn't any paper on no. it. It was him holding a phone yeah. that looked like a fake phone yes. with the cord like all the way around and him being like, Fired, you're fired, or whatever he was saying in the phone, but there was no paper anywhere. Spoiler alert the president doesn't know how to read or write. <laughs> That's it. I'm, I'm not I making think a joke. You can read like short like sentences. I'm not so sure of that. Like, five you ever see the tweets words. that he composes? <laughs> the misspellings? I just want a president who knows the difference between there, there, and there. That's all I want. Can that go with, uh, with your That's Fitbit? That's because you're a coastal elite. I'm a, apparently, I'm a coastal elite. <laughs> This is going as this is part of your Fitbit platform. Yes, a Fitbit on every hip, <laughs> and know the difference between there, 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 and there. See, this, I'm t I'm totally your campaign manager. I, I, I'm being totally serious. Here. I bet you I'm gonna find a leaked email where you messed up it there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Democrats have their version of a memo, which some people would say would this be... one's eleven pages, ten or eleven. Pages, oh wow! So well, that's we're, we're, we're still gonna... not a really difficult read. Not not too intense, but. 
they put this out, gave it to the White House because the White House has to okay its release, mm-hmm. and the White House said no. I think the White House actually sort of almost handled this in a politically savvy way. Basically, what happens? I don't disagree, I don't disagree with this, but go ahead. Basically, what happens is Nunes writes his memo. Um, everyone Schiff reads it. He's the top Democrat. He's like, "Man, this memo sucks. This is you know lacking context. This is outright." not factual like we don't we don't want this to get out and if it is going to get out we want to have our own version of the story to sort of rebut it see he writes his own memo his memo is like done and ready to go at the same time that the nunez memo is coming out but in a series of like complicated procedural moves where republicans block it from coming out simultaneously they say you have to go through the same complicated procedure this sort of allows nunez to get his narrative out there first have that be the only narrative people can read for a while um, I should add that when the Nunes memo was coming out, the FBI and the DOJ were like, you cannot release this. This is so reckless. This compromised the sources and methods. This yeah, isn't even yes. accurate. This Good is point. so bad. Um, FBI Director Chris Ray went to the White House and begged Trump pretty much not to release it. Trump's like, screw you guys, yeah, releases what it. Care? What does he care? Anyways, fast forward one week. The Democrats have their memo. I haven't read it. Um, presumably, Adam Schiff, I think, would be a little more cautious to not reveal sources and methods because, unlike the Republicans, he is not at war with the FBI at the moment. He even asked the FBI and the DOJ, can you guys look at this? Can you tell me if we need to redact anything? Like, I don't want to piss you off. I want to work with you guys. Anyways, in the lead up to it, Trump says, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to release this thing because of, like, national security. Oh, yeah, I don't want sure. I don't want to jeopardize the FBI that I've been, like, railing against on Twitter for the past year. So he says, I'm going to take their recommendations. A few days pass. FBI, DOJ, don't say anything publicly. And it's sort of this weird situation where the FBI and the DOJ are never going to be in favor yeah. of releasing any memo on this type of thing. And if they are in favor of releasing the Democrats one because it is less compromising, it makes them look like hypocrites, partisan hacks. So they kind of have to say, don't release it. And then they give Trump ammo to be like, oh, well, they said not to, so I'm not going to. Right. <laughs> Which is basically where Classic. we are now. Trump puts out a statement last Friday that says, oh, you know, I, I really love transparency and stuff, but um, this is just too dangerous. If the Democrats want to send me another draft, like, we'd love to work with them. Like, I'm the adult in the room, and I need to, you know, handle all these raucous congressmen who don't understand <laughs> state secrets and stuff. <laughs> I sort of feel like every time you do one of these play-by-plays of like, and this happened, and this happened, and then cut to present day, that you like forgot to start off with previously on House of Cards, <laughs> right? 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 Like, because that's totally what this sounds this like. Is like dumb House of Cards. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, dumb, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Dumb House of Cards. It's like we don't right. have like a <laughs> That's a great. That's a great bit. Dumb House of Cards. This is it. We found it. Lots of plot holes. Yeah. Like nothing but Lots plot, of plot holes. holes. Not nothing a lot but of plot like holes. Strategy. And nobody started dying yet. But it's right. early in the season. Like House of Cards has plenty of plot holes. The dumb the House of Cards. Is the first one to die on is House of Cards, <laughs> so I'm getting out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a black hole. Later. That's, right. that's, that's a good point. Did no. not ride the train today on my bike. <laughs> Definitely not taking the red line out of here. Yeah. Smart, smart point. Will, so my take on this is kind of like. Hey, Democrats, that's a nice memo you got there. It would be a shame if someone was to <laughs> leak it to well, a journalist. I've been asking Adam Schiff's office for some time now, hey, like, are you guys going to read it into the record? Like, why don't you read it into the record? Maybe you should read it into the record. Put the memo Which out. is something Democrats talk about doing, like, Wyden. He talks about this not all the time, but when, like, when there was the Senate torture report, when there was James Clapper yeah. obviously lying to everybody's face about whether or not the NSA was spying on Americans. Democrats have always toyed with this sort of thing in their back pocket. Like, well, technically, we could just read it into the congressional record, and it's a sort of loophole where we can, like, leak without being irresponsible about it. 
Um, it doesn't happen very often. Senator Feinstein did threaten to do it um, when the Republicans were sort of strong arming her on the torture report. Um, I haven't heard any murmurings of that with a Democrats memo, but it strikes me as like this is the obvious case to yeah. do that because I really doubt this is sensitive material. I mean, the new basically the most sensitive thing at the core of this discussion is the fact that there was a FISA warrant that was approved four total times to spy on Carter Page. That in itself is sort of a very sensitive classified thing, but that's out there. Reporters have been reporting on that for months. Uh, Nunes just sort of officially confirmed it last week. Like, that's out there. Mm -hmm. At this point, the only thing that isn't out there is more contextual details as to why this isn't a huge, scandalous, deep state conspiracy. It, it, I just think that the time for reverence for the President of the United States <laughs> is over. Peter, my Gosh! Oh my lands! How could you? I thought I thought we weren't doing that for the rest of the show. I, I just can't do the whole show. At oh, point. okay. Because but cause, I can bring it back. Okay. Now that I know the ground rules, I'm I'm gonna join you in that. <laughs> but like, screw this idiot! Like, screw Donald Trump! Put the friggin' memo out! And like, Put screw Devin Nunes! Like, screw Devin the Nunes. House Intelligence Committee has been so past the point of like bipartisanship cooperation. We're gonna get to the truth since like. Basically, this investigation started. Exactly. I love how the Senate Intel Committee is always like, "Oh, we're we're not like them. Just we don't. But please don't even ask me yeah. about those crazy people over. Yeah. No, we're oh. responsible. No, this isn't protocol. This isn't right. Get right. out of here. Yeah. Jessica Schulberg from the Huff Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you are so good. It's so nice to see you. You too. Uh, stay tuned. We got more Bill Press Show coming up. And this is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today, but I am not alone. I have brought reinforcements. I have brought help in the form of Rebecca Vallis, our good friend. She hosts the great podcast, Off Kilter, which you can find on iTunes. Just search for it, just for Off Kilter. You guys cover so much ground on that podcast. I love it. We have to. It's the show about poverty and inequality and everything they intersect with, and that's a big set of topics. Yeah, especially these days. Especially these days. Uh, it's really, really great. I encourage you all to go check that out and listen. We've got a great, great show coming up. We're going to dig into, speaking of all those issues, we're going to dig into the budget, which we got to look at yesterday, um, and we will talk to you about all of that. I do want to um, pick up again on uh, the Olympic stuff. I would only like to talk about the Olympics for the rest of the show. If we could not talk about Trump's budget, which was a total dumpster fire. Yeah. It would Something be. good and uplifting instead. Like, we have to talk about it. I know we'll get to it, but let's do the Olympics Let's do the first. Olympics. So HuffPost actually has a great uh, headline. The Twitter president has no time for American athletes, which is such a great trolley headline. He hasn't said anything. He hasn't congratulated any uh, Americans that have won gold, which we've now had, I think, I think we have 
four gold medals. It's weird, right? It is weird. I mean, look, you remember Barack Obama? I, 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 I have to stop doing this. It's a year later, and I, and I still haven't learned that I've got to stop doing this. But Barack Obama went to go and lobby to bring the Olympics to Chicago. Remember that? And, and Republicans got outraged over this for some stupid reason. Like, there are plenty of reasons to be against wanting the Olympics in your, like, in your country, right? Like, the Olympics are inherently not great in terms of what they do to a, a city. And, like, the Republicans didn't care about that. No. It was other reasons. And, like, Donald Trump hasn't said anything to anybody about it. It's, it's, it's weird, right? Because he, like, his State of the Union, he was just draping himself left and right with the flag, right? Trying to tell us how much he cares about the troops, veterans. Of course, his entire policy agenda is a huge, fat assault on yeah. our troops and our veterans. Yes. And we can talk about that when we talk about the budget. But what's weird is for somebody who tries to claim all the time that he's hugely patriotic, like, y- you kind of have to say something about the Olympic right? champions, right? Right. Or did I, maybe he maybe he missed the, the day they taught patriotism in patriotism school patriotism school i I think he skipped those classes you might have i am not a patriotic person i don't wave the flag but i do a little bit during the olympics which i I realize is a contradiction you kind of have to but i do i i I totally do uh pop quiz hot shot what is the best winter olympic sport I'm going to ask Ray and Rebecca. Well, there's only one right answer to this question. Go ahead. And that answer is figure skating, Peter. It's a very, very good answer. It's not the answer that I have, but it's a very, very good answer. So your answer is not the right answer, is what you're telling me? (laughs) You see what I did there? Yeah, very good. (laughs) Ray, the greatest uh, Winter Olympic sport is? I'm going to have to go with figure skating as well. Figure skating, both of you. A side note, did you see... I think it's called ice dancing. Yeah. Ice that dancing is troll. I love it. Rash. What? Ray, how could you? I didn't see that coming. Ice skating. Or the, no, ice dancing is amazing. essentially the less athletic, less <gasps> engaging version so of figure skating. I have a whole monologue in response to this that I came in prepared with. Um, it's it's in limerick we're going form. to break They can do soon. flips and all that stuff in ice dancing. They go crazy. My monologue mm. is in limerick form. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, actually, just kidding. It's not in Limerick form. No, ser- but ser- I actually really do like Limerick. I am Limericks. a pentameter. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I do have some serious thoughts about this, though. So I, a lot of people say that. A lot of people are like, oh, my God, it's just less hard, and they do less of the jumps, and it's just, it's the, it's the like, you know, um, it's like the light version, right? Yeah. It's like the Diet Coke version sure. of ice skating. This is what people say. Well, here's why I disagree with Go that. Go ahead. Right? Because the fact that it's um, um, pairs, right, and I'm talking about the ice dancing of pairs, is so hard to time your spins, your jumps, all that stuff. It is like the hardest thing yeah. as an athlete to change what your body wants to do from muscle memory. I agree. They deserve a lot of respect. I agree. I'll tell you the actual greatest Olympic sport in just a moment. Hang on, <laughs> hang on, hang on. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Reminder, 
that if you don't get the podcast, you miss some of the show. For those of you that are listening on WCPT in Chicago, and I know we had some technical issues earlier on WCPT, but if you missed any of the show, we put the entire show up in podcast form on iTunes. Go grab it there, and you can hear our conversation that we were just having about the greatest Winter Olympic sport. Um, Rebecca said figure skating. Because it's correct. Ray also said figure skating. Because it's correct. The correct answer, of course, is the biathlon. Okay. So the, the correct answer is the biathlon. I'm sorry. You get to cross-country ski, which is grueling, and then you have to shoot guns, and then you have to go ski some more. There are... Okay, I take back my former answer that ice skating, see, dancing is not great. Argument. I made such a compelling argument. Because... I do not want to see people ski uphill, and I do not want to see them shoot guns. I do like seeing them ski uphill. It's remarkable. They are incredibly strong and yeah, they're, fast. They're total. Like I, this is not me diminishing the sport, right? That is athleticism at levels I hope never to experience. Right? <laughs> As someone who would much rather sit on my couch, firmly planted, surrounded by my aforementioned four cats, watching sports on television. That's my Olympic sport, right? That's my watching hey, Olympic sport. Peter, this is why we get along yeah. so well, yeah. right? So no, huge athleticism. They get all kinds of of credit, but for like, what's most fun to watch? It's figure skating. And Peter, I think you have no soul because you don't understand this. I, it's true. I, 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 I'm the first to admit that I have no soul. <laughs> um, you know what else is a great Olympic sport, which I was watching some yesterday? The luge. Yeah. The luge. Yes. The luge. I have always loved the luge. I'll watch luge out of the Olympic season. That's how much I love luge. Oh, my I'll goodness. Find, I'll find it on an off year, and I'll watch the luge. Did you ever um, – I miss Robin Williams so much and yeah. in so many ways. Did you ever watch his live on Broadway special? No, I didn't did? see that. It is totally worth going back and watching. It's like an HBO special, mm -hmm. right? And he does this bit about the Winter Olympics, which is, like, why this is super timely. And he does this impression of luge about – if I'm remembering this correctly, it's like it's a, it's a giant sperm – who's like flying down an ice chute and he like does this with his like Robin Williams physicality yep. and voice yes. and it's like so spot on. I would love to watch that. It's all I can see when I watch Luge. That is relevant to my interest. It is relevant to many of your interests. The thing about Luge is you're always at any given moment on this track where you're flying down a giant sheet of ice on essentially a skateboard. You are like a centimeter or two away from certain death. Yeah. Like people die doing the Luge. Yes, they do. Like if you if you were to just eat it, if you were to just fall or like take a wrong turn, like you're toast because you're going like eighty miles an hour, and that's if you're by yourself. If you're on the doubles, you're going even faster. Yeah, I actually, you're going over a hunch. I can't even get my head around what those people are doing. Um, now, now that being said, you know what sport we haven't talked about, and talk about throwbacks that we should be watching while we're watching the, the Winter Olympics What's right that? now. Bobsledding. Bobsledding. Cool Runnings. Good. Best Bob movie Sledding ever. Is, yes, cool Runnings is a very good right? movie. Right? Cool Runnings is a very good movie. John Candy, one of the greatest oh. coaches in uh, cinematic history. I miss him, too. Right? Yeah. I love the bobsled. Oh, I just got all depressed. Sorry. Yeah. It was my fault. I brought it up. <laughs> also, all right, we're going to move on for the Olympics. But also the <laughs> Are we? Do we have the, to? Yeah, I know. We should just talk about LA. <laughs> the ski jump, where yeah. you soar through the air oh, like so that. Cool. It's so cool. I think I could do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could land, but I could definitely go down the big ramp and you fly through the air. You nail that takeoff. And then that <laughs> I was watching it with my kids the other day, and one of them said, can you imagine the very first time, like not, like now that you're at the Olympics, you've done this a hundred times, you know, hundreds of times. 
you imagine the very first time you have to go down one of those things, like looking down that, I mean, the camera angle alone gives me vertigo. Just watching it on TV, I get nauseous. Yeah, I mean, it's like they always say with, with back to the figure skating, because that's what I'm obsessed with, it's like the first time you're setting foot on Olympic ice, right, the nerves. Yeah. And like Scott Hamilton, who's one of the commentators, because he used to be one of the greats, right? He he was like the dude who could do backflips on yeah. ice, so cool. He he describes what it's like to feel um, stepping foot on Olympic ice for the first time for figure skaters as just total vertigo, right? Like, oh, wow. Like the room is spinning, you, you like literally don't even know who you are anymore. And I'm sure that's probably true, because this is a moment you've trained for your entire life right and you're and there you are and the stakes are so high and everyone's expecting you to medal for your country i can only imagine not doing that by setting foot on yeah, a right. firm ice right. but by like catapulting yourself over like a, a a huge um hole basically in the ground hurtling towards a giant canyon yeah with uncertainty of how you will land with actual vertigo yeah Right, because of the height yeah. as opposed to just your nerves. Right. I can't even imagine. No, it. thanks. Not yeah. all that different from a Trump presidency in America. Oh, Brings look it at back. this. Brings it back. Ray's been running the board for just a couple of weeks. She's already got it down. Look at that. She's already keeping you on topic. Well done. Uh, really quickly, we, I, I swear to God we're going to move on, but we do have some comments on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, two comments both saying curling is the best Winter Olympic sport. I do like curling. I do like curling. You want to know why? But the best? You want to know why? Because all the athletes look like me. <laughs> and I'm like, I Ms. could Olympic do that. Body. I could do that. Like, these are athletes with dad bods. I could Aww. do that. I could do that. <laughs> but do you have the patience to, like, no. do the thing where you're, like, barely moving a no. stick and somehow you know it's it's going to achieve your long goal of moving the thing? I don't even un understand the rules of curling. Like, I would just assume it was kind of like marbles where I just have to knock the other person's stone out of the way, which I don't think is how it works. I don't think so. But that's what I would do. But that's what I would do. Like, all these other athletes who haven't had a dessert in eight years oh, and yeah. wear these spandex suits, like, good for them. I want someone who is wearing, like, chinos and, like, very comfortable shoes on ice. You know what I bet you could wear while curling? A caftan? I was going to say a caftan. A caftan. And a yeah. jean jacket. I could do that. Well, it's cold. It you is cold. You, you need the jean jacket for the, for the cold. Okay. So uh, let's move on because uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have Rebecca in this morning is because she has such a big, beautiful brain when it comes to all things budget. In fact, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I believe the last time, about a year ago, when Donald Trump put out his budget, we had you on the program. Truth. Um, and I think it's it, it's um, necessary for us to sort of put this caveat up front that just because a president puts out a budget doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But uh, the Reverend Jim Wallace, uh, who we've worked with uh, on occasion here in the studio, has said... Uh, a president's budget is a moral document. Yes. It shows what the president uh, believes in, where he believes that uh, the resources should go, 
And all that being said, what did we see in Donald Trump's budget? Well, I'm going to take it one step further, right? Because so many people like to say, oh, the president's budget, it's just a big document, right? It, it's not going to become law. It's never going to be voted on in all likelihood. So it's it's DOA. Some people even say it's DBA, right? Dead before arrival. Okay. And here's why it's not. And then we'll talk about what's in it. Um, it it's because I got to make people care first, right? Yeah, Otherwise, oh, they're going to tune this off and go, oh, they're talking about that thing that doesn't matter. Well, here's why it matters matters. Remember uh, end of last year when the... I don't, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you have good reasons. I was in a coma. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's I'm just such kidding. a good comeback in I'm that just moment. Kidding. I'm sorry, sorry. It's like the oh. best answer. So, I have to tell you, having, oh my gosh. Sp- having spent some time in a coma during the Trump presidency, underrated. <laughs> Being in a coma, underrated. And you heard it here. That's not how to cope in this new political normal. Uh, Peter Peter Ogburn has it for you. It's not coma-ing. We'll, we'll discuss <laughs> in the next segment what how to actually cope, Sorry, right? Yeah, you're killing me here, Peter. Sorry, you're killing me. So uh, why does it matter? Um, because you, you totally threw me off my... I, f- I was going to say smart things, Peter. Yeah, no, I- So a lot of people like to say that it's dead on arrival. Here's why it's not. Thing one, end of last year, right? End of last year, you got all these Republicans in Congress trying to ram through and ultimately successfully ramming through the single most unpopular piece of legislation in modern history. What was it, Peter? It was the tax bill. the tax bill. It gave huge, huge tax cuts to the wealthiest people in this country so that they could put a boat inside their boat. That's right. That's that's, that's what it's for. <laughs> it's like Pimp My uh, Ride, the old exhibit show. Yo, yep. dog, I heard you like boats, so we put a boat inside your boat. That is what it <laughs> was Filed for. under exhibit. Yeah, right. Well, thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you. And to super wealthy corporations, right, as well, who, who really got tons and tons of those tax cuts. So they did it without paying for it. They did it by jacking up the deficit that they claim they hate. They've told us how much over the years that they hate the deficit. They jacked up the deficit by $1.5 trillion with no plan to pay for it. Well, guess, Peter, what Trump's budget is. It's how they plan to pay for it. It's a total roadmap of all of the things that Trump and his Republican colleagues in Congress want to slash or even eliminate all so that they can pay for the giant hole they just blew in the deficit. That's what this is about, and that's why people should care. And there's one other reason I'm going to give why people should care, and I'm pulling up a tweet storm I did on this actually this morning. I was just about to give a shout-out to your tweet storm because you had a a couple of great comments this morning on Twitter where people can follow you, uh, of course, at Rebecca Vallis. That's Vallis with two L's. Uh, tell me more about what you were tweeting this morning. Well, so, it was so smart. So, like, thing too about why this budget matters is Trump has already shown us that he doesn't care to wait for Congress to try to enact his agenda through legislation. Right? He's he he showed us that actually last month. Here's a great example when he said, "You know what? We spent most of last year trying to take away health care from tens of millions yeah. of Americans. We were unsuccessful because it turns out people really like their health care, and particularly." their Medicaid. And so he said, I know, what can I do as president that doesn't require legislation to totally dismantle the healthcare system and slash Medicaid? And and that's what we're actually watching him do right now in ways that I think are probably not going to stand up to legal challenge. That's a separate conversation. So these are the reasons why Trump's budget matters. So now, now that you care, everyone who's listening, (laughs) because obviously that was the most compelling argument ever. How could you not? What is it that's in this budget? What would Trump do to pay for his tax 
cuts for the wealthy. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Well, I've I've got a helpful list for you, Peter. Oh my God, a, a list! list. Just, everyone loves a list. Everyone loves lists. Just for you, this list is for you. Number one, he wants to take away your health care. So that's right. Trump and his colleagues in Congress are telling us through Trump's budget that they are not done trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. I'm being serious here. I can't believe this is really happening. But Trump put in his budget yet again, repealing the Affordable Care Act and ending Medicaid as we know it. Um, So really, attacks on health care are not over. He would slash education in ways that uh, we haven't even seen since Reagan was president, right? So bye-bye to a whole bunch of teachers who would see their salaries cut or their jobs lost. Bye-bye to students who aren't going to be able to get into after-school programming and all the kinds of stuff they need. Um, He would also make college a heck of a lot less affordable by slashing Pell Grants and and public service loan forgiveness, right, which helps people go into the public sector. Um, You want me to keep going, Peter? No, please do. No, 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 no. I love this stuff. This is quite a list because I'm just getting started. (laughs) Trump's budget, and here's here's one of my favorites. It, It was like only a week ago that Speaker Paul Ryan in the House was trying to rebrand his cuts to Medicaid and everything else that he's been dreaming about since he was drinking out of kegs in college. His words, by the way. His words. He's been trying to rebrand all of that as so-called workforce development. Workforce development. If we just take away people's health care, then they'll work a lot harder, right? Um, and and just days after that. By Trump's, the way, no, that, but I don't mean to interrupt, yeah, but like yeah. the workforce development, yeah. you just hit the nail on the friggin' head. Yep. Like this is not a Trump plan. This is not a Trump budget. Yep. This is a Republican budget. And yep. when you talk about things like how they want to take away your health care, they do. And their solution is to make you work harder to try and get it, right? And call it a fancy word like workforce development, which sounds positive, which sounds positive. But the reality is they're just trying to fleece you and and put the put more weight on your back. It drives me crazy. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and guess what's going to make it even harder for you to find a job? I don't know, being sick yeah. because you don't have health care. you don't anymore, have health care. Right? That's what they call workforce development. So <laughs> surprise, Trump's budget, because it is the Republican budget, uh, it slashes job training, right, in the name of, of workforce development. Um, and then remember how Trump's new favorite word is infrastructure, oh, Peter? Yeah. Right? He's all about the infrastructure. We hear about it from him all the time. Well, guess what his budget cuts? Infrastructure. <sighs> oh, shock of shocks. Right? So that's what he's really doing. Um, I love that we're coming up on another other infrastructure week yeah like remember the the other infrastructure week where we talked about everything but infrastructure like i forget what it was that he got in so much trouble for but he got in major trouble like the last so like this infrastructure week we'll celebrate by donald trump telling the story about how he could have totally nailed suzanne summers in a club back in 1987 which ends up right whatever that scandal is becoming the huge distraction away from his policies which are actually to cut infrastructure while it's like he thinks if he just says the word invest right that that's going to somehow make cuts into 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 increased spending it's i mean it's a total farce right it's a sham all right I want to I want to play a couple because I know you got more to say. And I, I, I want to hear more, more what you want to say. I want to play a couple of clips just just so that people can hear it from the horse's mouth. And the horse in this case is Mick Mulvaney, uh, who came out to talk about the uh, the uh, the budget. First of all, I find this clip to be not only tone deaf but just weird. Mick Mulvaney talking about how food stamps might change. Proposed that for folks who are on food stamps, part not all 
part of their benefits come in the actual sort of, and I don't want to steal somebody's copyright, but a blue apron type program where you actually receive the food instead of re receive the cash. Wow. A blue apron type situation. Wow. I'm just like dumbfounded that he would actually say that. I mean, he's obviously speaking to a very specific audience with that, right? Well, the audience is, hey, Big Ag, yeah. hey, all of Sonny Purdue, the Secretary of Agriculture, hey, all of your rich friends, uh, want to get richer? We've got a plan for you, and yeah. it's called making, uh, totally controlling low-income families' food intake by sending mm -hmm. them the food that we want to pay you for to make right. you richer. That's what this is. And by the way, for all of these Republicans that have made a career out of being so-called all about like make like getting the government out of your life and letting you make your own decisions, letting you pave your own way. That like that that has a limit to them. We now know that, that it has a limit. They want to control what you eat. Well, it has a limit, which is that they they they're all about getting government out of your life unless you're low income. Yeah. In which case, they want to be all up in your business. Control all of your business about everything. Do you remember when? Uh, our old friend Arthur Delaney, Arthur Delaney was on the show. And from the Puffington Host. Yes, with the Puffington Host. And he used to um, report a lot about food stamps. And he said that they were, they being the Republicans, were actually trying to pass legislation that would limit people's access to lobster tails if they had food stamps. Like, this is how disconnected yes. the Republicans are from the reality of people that need food assistance. Well, and quick, quick uh, fact for those out there listening and who want to know more about food stamps. Uh, guess how much, Peter, uh, food stamps give you um, to, to eat for a meal? Are we talking in money or lobster tails? Like um, how many lobster tails you get on your food stamps? 0 0.08. Oh, 0 0.08 lobster tails. I think it's probably even less because <laughs> yeah, it's a dollar forty per person per meal. That is what you get in food stamps on average right what? so so now now mind you of course like uh, Paul Ryan does seem to think that a dollar 50 is a lot of money right, yeah, right as right, we right. learned with Costco membership right so so that's but i agree it's that's that is exhibit a of how out of touch these guys are right and that's what this budget would do it doesn't stop there there's more right i could keep going obviously no, no, as no, long as you it. let me keep going peter because the cuts just keep on coming um, but trump's budget um, in the middle of an uh, affordable housing crisis right with rents in cities across this country at, at levels that people just can't afford. Half, literally half of renters right now are struggling to afford their housing. And Trump wants to cut housing assistance, right, which already goes to almost nobody. Um, he wants to just weeks after a polar vortex, I'm still cold just thinking about yeah. how cold it was. And this was just D.C., let alone Boston, right, where yeah. my parents live. Um, he wants to eliminate home heating aid, just like zero it out. Right. Sorry, seniors, that you're shivering by your your like microwave at home or whatever you're going to use oh to stay God. warm. Um, he, he would cut Social Security disability benefits despite promising not to touch Social Security. And then I'm going to I'm going to mention one last one, because this one to me, I think, just speaks volumes. Right. About how myopic and, and ill informed and allergic to facts this administration is. Trump's budget would slash the CDC, right, the CDC's work, um, the Centers for Disease Control, yeah. their work to prevent epidemics that break out overseas by 80%. So guess what, 
Trump wants to do. He wants to literally put everyone in this country at risk of Ebola yeah. and everything else that could end up coming over here if we aren't doing that kind of work. So that's what Trump's budget and much more would slash all to pay for tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. So, and that's why we need to be paying attention. So I, I, I've said for a long time that modern politics, I mean, this has always been sort of the case, but the way that 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 Republicans have gotten so good at messaging and the Democrats, I think, have kind of gotten left behind in a lot of this is Democrats have got to learn to speak the language where they can say the government is good, the government is capable of doing big, big things, and the government is here to help you. Now, the whole Ronald Reagan BS back of the day of the scariest words you can hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Those days are long gone. I mean, look, will the government get everything right? No. Do they have the power and resources to immediately fix whatever problem might be happening? Yes, they do. Like, so this whole thing is just still fighting the fights of the 1980s. No, that's exactly right. I mean, this is. And by the way, and by the way, both parties are stuck in that fight. Democrats, I I, I think they're finding their voice, but they haven't found it yet. Yeah, and you know, I think. I think one of the things that this budget really terrifies me about in a lot of ways is that it's not, and you said this before, and I think this is so important, it's not just about what Trump wants to do. It's about what Paul Ryan wants to do, right? And so there were a lot of folks right before uh, the holidays who were saying, oh, you know what? There was news that broke that Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, was saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to do things like cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps, not not on my watch and certainly not in an election year, right? Because he's bracing for a pummeling right at the polls in November and I'm going to knock on wood that we see that happen because of how justifiable (laughs) it would be but Paul Ryan is totally there this dude is so obsessed with slashing every program that helps everyday Americans make ends meet right dreaming about it since he was drinking out of kegs he literally told that to us so I have this permanent vision in my head of this dude doing a keg stand while he's like there's way too much Medicaid there's too much Medicaid bruh (laughs) people are totally eating way too much nutritious food <laughs> right like that's what he's saying like while he's on, yeah. on the keg stand like uh, and that's probably not all that much of an, an exaggeration but this dude is so obsessed that he is literally trying to figure out what the magic buzzword is whether it's workforce development or something else it's going to convince his colleagues to be just as stupid as he is to want to do this in an election year and that is why this budget is so terrifying all right, I'm going to read a couple of things to you. This is from CNN this morning. Uh, headline, Trump's budget would add trillions to the deficit. Voters probably won't care. I think that's so such a perfect distillation of what we are now, right? Um, this budget would add $984 billion to the deficit. That is an 89% increase to the deficit. Republicans have sort of built a narrative over... Is that this budget, or is it the budget deal that was cut last week? Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. So this is the budget deal that was cut last week. Forgive me. I'm so sorry. And I think that's important for listeners to understand. Yes, I'm sorry. So so the budget deal that was cut last week adds all this money. This will add even more to the deficit. No, this one that Trump has just proposed, right, is basically... It's like it's this weird cognitive dissonance. Yeah. It actually is all about cutting things, right? So, But the point you're about to make is really important because it's about hypocrisy. Yes, yeah. And so, like... They have built this narrative, or had built this narrative, especially under the the uh, terms of Barack Obama, of budgets are deficits are bad. Yep. 
no deficits whatsoever. Barack Obama even fell for this, and he felt like he had to play along with this game. Austerity, which, right? It was contagious. Yeah, it, it totally was. It totally was. And so now we've got these Republicans that I think have given up this idea that uh, that that they can be deficit hawks. Well, I don't know that they have, right? right? Because there's, I think it's about using it when it's convenient. Yes. I think what's happened now is not that Republicans have given up hating the deficit that they've always claimed to hate. I think it's that the, we've all now gotten a glimpse of, of what the emperor is really wearing, and it's, it's nothing, right? It's not a caftan. It's not a jean jacket. It's not a sarong. sarong. The emperor is friggin' naked, right? Yeah, That's yeah. what he's got clothes on. That's what we've seen, right? Republicans voting um, in lockstep for that tax law, um, that tax bill, now law, that that blew a huge hole in the deficit, $1.5 trillion to the deficit, because they were totally fine with increasing the deficit if it meant they were giving their donor class early Christmas presents, right? And and I think that's the hypocrisy that's now been laid bare, is that they only care about it when it serves them, like when they're trying to scaremonger and tell everyone, we can't afford Social Security and Medicare. And like Medicaid, yes. and and yes. there and there comes the voice from Tara again. Here for the accents. Come, come, come for the uh, insights onto modern politics. Stay for the funny accents. I love it. Um, one final question on this whole budget thing. We see that they're being hypocritical on this. We see the game that they're trying to play. We see the con that they're trying to pull. We, meaning you and I, and the people that listen and watch this show. Will America see that? My prediction is yes. I, I kind of agree, too. And here's why. We saw with the health care fight, we mm-hmm. saw people who had never been engaged before in, in politics, in activism, taking to the streets, joining their local chapter of Indivisible, right, at, at a pace that I don't think anybody expected. We saw people in the streets saying, you know, hey, Trump, hands off my Medicaid, hands off my, my Affordable Care Act, hands off my grandma's nursing home care, right, all those things. And, and there's something about the dynamic of taking things away from people that they really like. So we at CAP actually just did some recent polling um, looking at what people think about all these kinds of proposals, like cutting Medicaid, like cutting home heating assistance, like cutting food and housing and all the things I was just talking about that Trump wants to take away from people to pay for millionaires to have a boat inside their boat. Um, And what we found is not only are these programs hugely popular um, and cutting them is super unpopular, like 80 percent of Americans yeah. say don't cut Medicaid, like 78 percent of Americans say don't cut home eating assistance, <laughs> high numbers across party lines, right? But people also said, and guess what? I would be a heck of a lot less likely to vote for somebody who supports those policies. So I think what we're going to end up seeing if they end up going down this road, Trump and, and Paul Ryan and others, um, is the American voters are going to stand up in November and say, dude, we told you yeah. what was going to happen. Here's your pink slip. I tend to agree with you. And I'm not a very optimistic person, as we've established. I, I just, I, I typically feel, I mean, look, we elected Donald Trump as a country, right? Like, th- things are pretty bleak. Well, depends on who you ask. Oh, well, fair, right, fair. But, like, that is the case. Like, he is the president. Uh, I, I do think that this whole trying to have it both ways, back and forth, nonsense, garbage, that every Republican spews is going to catch up with them. And you could say, like, okay, part of it is the whole wave election thing, which typically happens. And part of it is just, like, they're not doing themselves any favors. 
Yeah, no. Look at themselves any favors at all. No, it's it. I think it's total political suicide if they end up doing this. And and frankly, I think the American people are onto them. So I will put in a plug. If folks are listening and they're mad, if you're mad as hell and you don't want to take it anymore, that this is what Trump and and his colleagues in Congress want to do to your health care, to your social security, to your environment, and more, uh, come check out handsoff.org. That is the national campaign to stop Trump's cuts to everything we all rely on, all to give millionaires a boat inside their boat. Um, handsoff.org and you can also check out the hashtag handsoff where people are sharing their stories every single day of what uh, these kinds of budget cuts would mean to them and their family. Make it happen. Go check that out. That is the voice of Rebecca Vallis uh, who is in with me for the entire show. We are up against a break so we're going to take a very quick look. What a great analysis of the budget. Thank you so much. I do what I can, Peter. Uh, We're going to take a very, very quick break and coming up next we talk to our friend Jack Jenkins. Is a reporter for Religion News Service. Uh, we will get all uh, an update on the prayer breakfast that Donald Trump spoke at, which that should be fun. Stay tuned. It's the Bill Press Show. We'll be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show, 37 minutes past the hour on this Fat Tuesday. It's party draw, y'all. I don't party like I used to. So, like, normally, first of all, I will say this. I think that everybody should go to New Orleans for Mardi Gras once. And once you go, it's crazy. Like, it's just crazy. It's just uncomfortable crazy. Like, I like crazy, but it's uncomfortable crazy. I actually went to New Orleans recently for the first time in a while. Um, I have a firm policy. I will say this out loud in case anyone's listening who wants to book me for a speaking engagement. Yes. I have an, a policy of saying yes to every speaking engagement in New Orleans that, is, that ever comes into my inbox. Hell yeah. Firm policy, firm life policy. So you heard it. If you're in New Orleans, you want me to speak, I'm, I'm yours. So I was there recently. Um, and, and it's just, it's so much fun in like quasi adulthood, right? I, I, I don't say full adulthood because we know I'm not a full adult, Same. but in, in, in what what sort of passes for adulthood in my life, it's so much more fun than I remember ever having at Mardi Gras yeah. because, A, I can remember it. Yes. Right? And, B, I'm not, like, you know, uh, doubled over on Bourbon Street. Right. right. And, C, I'm, like, on Frenchman Street listening to really good music, drinking, like, a way better cocktail than right. whatever in the six-foot glass I was carrying right, that right. was taller than Right, You're on Bourbon Street drinking a bucket of Schlitz. Yeah, so I'm with you. You should go once, right? Yeah. Hope Preferably in college when you can still handle it and your liver, you know, still thinks it's, it's your recovery. grace period. Um, <laughs> and then you should go back later and, like, actually experience New Orleans. That's true. That's 100% true. That is the voice of Rebecca Vallis. She hosts the Off-Kilter podcast. And she's been with me all during the show uh, and did a great analysis of Trump's budget, which we saw yesterday. We are joined uh, by our friend, my friend. So good to see you, Jack Jenkins. He's a reporter with Religion News Service, formerly of Think Progress. That's right. Uh, good to see you, man. Thanks for having me, man. How's everything going in the new year? I don't think I've seen you in the new year. No, it's good. It's good. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of religion journalism um, to be done. And uh, no, I, mean, I don't think that that, that beat is going to dry up anytime it's, soon. It uh, turns out the intersection of religion and politics. There's a, there's a lot to write there right about now. Who'd have so. thunk? <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Um, I want to start out talking about uh, a headline from February second, two thousand seventeen. So a little over a year ago, and we had you in when this happened. Mm-hmm. The headline from the Washington Post is: Donald Trump asks for prayers for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings at the National Prayer Breakfast. Now, the National Prayer Breakfast, which I have long 
held to be a total phony BS event here in Washington, D.C., right? And uh, I, I'm not a religious person. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. But, like, you want to pray, pray. Like, I, I always point to my mother as the, the best example of what Christianity, before I found out she was a Trump voter, could could be, right? Like, she, like religion worked for her. She didn't sort of proselytize. She didn't sort of put it, push it out there to everybody else. But the prayer breakfast does exactly that. Like it sort of, all the presidents have to go, or they feel like they have to go, including Donald Trump, who made a mockery of it last year by saying, "And maybe we should all pray that that Arnold Schwarzenegger gets better better ratings on The Apprentice." The National Prayer Breakfast, for some reason, invited him back this year. Did he embarrass himself again? So, so he, interestingly, he did not discuss The Apprentice at, <laughs> okay. in his speech. And the ratings? In, instead, he tweeted about it before he got there. Okay. So he tweeted that one of the producers hey. of The Apprentice would be at the National Prayer Breakfast hey, hey, before he progress. visited. Hey, so, man, that's progress. <laughs> what do you want from the guy? <laughs> right. It was. It was. It was. Well, there's. There's. You know. There seems to be a trend of, of him pushing that that sort of stuff to his Twitter feed and then making his speeches more traditional. And on most metrics, his speech was you know less less bombastic, let's say, than last year. There were there were there was no Arnold Schwarzenegger appearance um, this go round. Um, in- instead, uh, you know the, the the speech seemed more traditional for Trump, and by that what that I I mean that he spoke to basically Christian nationalism. He spoke yeah. a lot to the overlap of a Christian identity and a national identity. So, for instance, he said America is a nation of believers, um, and that we are who who draw strength from the power of prayer. And he referred to, you know, as long as we open our heart to God's grace, America will continue to be a, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, effectively implying that if you, if you, as long as you're, we maintain a belief in God, quote unquote, which in this context is clearly a very conservative Christian God, at least that's a lot of the people he's speaking to, um, you know, that that is what makes America great, as it were. So that was kind of the, the it was a shorter about 14 minute speech that was mostly about conflating national identity and religious identity. Um in in the year or so that Donald Trump has been president a little over a year we've had you on the show many times and I always ask you the same question. At what point <laughs> will the religious right abandon Donald Trump? So it's an interesting question, particularly right now. Um, if by religious right you mean the leaders that the president surrounds himself with, right? <laughs> so um, the evangelical advisors, um, it, it seems really unlikely that they'll abandon him. In fact, after a lot of the, the Stormy Daniels controversy. Yes, recently, right, I wanted to ask you about this specifically. Um, when you know there was there was release that, that Trump may or may not have had an extramarital affair, or may or may not have paid off someone to not talk about it. Um, the voices you heard on news stations the next week defending Trump, or at least you know trying to to downplay the controversy, were were not necessarily White House officials. They were these faith leaders. There was yeah. Tony Perkins from the Framer Research Council. It was from um, it was uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., head of Liberty University. It was Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham. And it was it was this trio of of faith leaders that were that were, that were Trump's staunch defenders. And this is. There's there's a little bit of a pattern here in that after Charlottesville, after his controversial comments when he claimed that both sides were at fault um, for the violence in Charlottesville that left one person dead and many others wounded, um, when ABC tried to get a White House official to come on and speak about that controversy, 
um, the White House, according to ABC, um, didn't get wouldn't provide them with an actual liaison from the White House. Instead, they said you should call Jerry Falwell Jr. Mm. So if anything, this group of leaders seems to be lining up um, behind Trump as his moral defenders, almost you know, irrespective of what the controversy is at this point. Okay, so almost like his spokespeople. Right? Yeah, I mean that's yes. that's what that story sounds like. Is like they've designated you know Jerry Falwell Jr. as actually a spokesperson for the White House because they know that he's going to placate um, the faith community. Well, th- th- I, this this comes back to something I, I've said for over a year and a half now, right? Like the, Donald Trump's real skill is hiding behind other people and putting like the blame and the and the the responsibility on other people, right? Like he can hide behind the religious right who will go out there and gladly defend him. The, the Franklin Graham story uh, that that sticks with me was from less than a month ago. Uh, when he went on with Don Lemon, this was in the middle of the Stormy Daniels story, which right. Donald Trump may or may not have had an affair with. I'll, I'll be generous, all right? But I will say that the, the Trump campaign paid her a lot of money to not come forward with the story. Looks guilty to me, but she's been a little inconsistent on her story. Uh, she came out and said that she did, after she said that she had an affair, she came out and said, oh, well, we never had sex, which means <laughs> the check probably cleared. Uh, but whether she did or she didn't, uh, Franklin Graham went on with Don Lemon and said, these alleged affairs, they're alleged with Trump, didn't happen while he was in office. In other words, it doesn't matter because none of this happened when he was president. Like, it all happened before he was president. Now, I don't remember the religious right holding that same, uh, 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 sort of standard for other politicians. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question about whether or not that sort of theology or logic will hold up, right? So one thing you heard from Falwell and Franklin Graham was this impl- implication that Trump has, if if any of those things were true, if all of these past things were true, and the, and the, they would point to the videotape as something that's like obviously verifiably, you know, something something his voice, something he's talked about. Like, there's been confirmation that that happened, although Trump. You know, also kind of denied it at one point, but that video is the one they'll point to. Like, well, you at least this is bad, right? Like, this yeah. is something that would be anathema to the evangelical community. Um, and they'll say, well, he's changed since then. I believe he's a different man than he was. And so, what these you will find often these these uh, hosts of these television shows will say, I'm like, all right, so like, what what apology are we referring to? Like, you know, there's this evangelical sense of repentance and you know apology you know where where did that come from where has trump like given this and they'll say you know I, well i've heard it or you know he well he did you know issue a statement about this which is a little bit different because mm-hmm. when in past years you know the the salvation the, the narrative of forgiveness is one that um, evangelical leaders and the religious right have often given people like like george w bush for instance bush you know had this awakening and he became a different person quote unquote um, now, what is interesting about the in-office versus out-of-office thing is that does seem to be something that they can at least point to the moments in which they deeply criticize Bill Clinton. Sure, yes. That, uh, that, that, to me, was so obvious. It's the whole purpose for that test, right? It is literally the what, what line can we draw that Bill Clinton is on the wrong side of, right. that Trump is on the right side of, oh, wait, we've got it. Like yeah. That's what that line is about. Right. Yeah. 
and and it it is I mean you know it, it's an interesting and that's why both Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell got a lot of really tough questions from um, uh, CNN hosts and MSNBC hosts about this very question they were like well you know is what if what if it did happen in office would you know would he if he apologized the next day you know would that change things I mean these are live questions around these leaders um, and you know, they and, and the hosts can point to things like Ralph Reed in particular you know in the New York Times was talking about how character counts and that voters want that in their leaders back in the 90s during Bill Clinton. And then when Donald Trump was running for president, said, you know, the, I can't support these statements, but like there's bigger things at play here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's it's tough to kind of a theology that can kind of um, constantly say, well, if someone is forgiven, if someone you know, if they if they recant the next day. Does that mean that they're fine? They're moving forward, right? Like that's that's the live question that they bring up around Trump is whether or not any of this theology could apply be applied consistently were Trump to be caught in the act during his presidency. And also, is there a quota, right? Like, does, is there a limit? <laughs> right. Does he get like a, a mulligan every morning when he is it like Groundhog Day, right? With Bill Murray waking up every day and like and he just can do it all like in a serious question, right? Because that's I mean that is sort of what this opens the door to. But I can't believe I'm going to do this, but this is the second Bill Hicks bit that I've referenced on today. Show. It is actually, yeah. But there's a bit where he 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 says a lot of fairly atheist things in his act. He used to say a lot of things that were anti-Christian in his act, and he talks about how there was after he did an, uh, one of his 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 bits, some people came up to him after the show and said, "Hey man, I'm a Christian. I don't like some of the stuff that you said." Bill Hicks says, "Fine, and forgive me." <laughs> and it's just like that to me is so Trumpian. Like you just do whatever you want without any real remorse. And or consequences. Or consequences as many times as you want. And then just look back at the religious right and just go, forgive me. I mean, it, there is the, the idea that you can receive redemption and forgiveness in a Christian context is very old and, and very well trodden. The, the question that Trump brings up and, you know, that Bill Clinton brought up as well and lots of political leaders have. Um, but Trump is calling the question a very particular way is – is it one thing to be forgiven by God and by a community? Is it another thing for that forgiveness to say that you're also qualified to be president of the United States, yeah. right? And if you have this history of the religious right, um, these particularly these leaders, not necessarily the community themselves, um, although, well, there's some data about that too. <laughs> um, the the you know if there's this history around that, you know what. Um, what what would could make that break in terms of an occupying mm. an office, right? And the one statistic you know everyone often points to in terms of the community, and, and something that really kind of I think tells a lot of stories around this question. Um, there was an, a poll done in 2016 around white evangelicals, and effectively, I'll get the question wording a little wrong here, but effectively it was: Do you think that? Um, religious leaders should be moral in their personal lives, right? I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, political leaders should be moral in their personal lives. And um, would you vote for someone who is immoral in their personal lives? And effectively, the original time they asked that question, only about 30% of white evangelicals years ago, 2011, 2010, said that they would support some, a candidate who, who was immoral in their personal life, but represented their ideals outside of that. In 2016, he was in the 70s. Like that quick of a turnaround wow. in within one community, yeah. and um, and the, it, there's only two data points there, but I think there's a lot in that about how um, you know politically speaking, are people willing to forgive more quickly if someone is it, it will, will privilege their ideals or their um, you know just their agenda. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and to me, like, let me let me say this. I'm actually a huge fan of forgiveness, right? A mm-hmm. lot of the work, right? I work on poverty, right? I'm not. I hold grudges <laughs> forever. Uh, forever. I'm also, I'm also a recovering lawyer, so I, I should have offered a caveat before I said that, Peter. Fair. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a pro, I'm pro forgiveness in certain circumstances. <laughs> no, no, but, but I'm being serious here. I'm actually super pro forgiveness, and in, in, in a lot of different contexts, including a lot of the work I do is around removing barriers to opportunity for people mm-hmm. with criminal records, right, who can find that that every door is closed in their face to getting a job, to getting housing, et cetera, for the rest of their lives because of something that they did that was a mistake they made once or even just having an arrest record that never even led to a conviction, right? So I am super pro-forgiveness and, and letting yeah. people move on with their lives. Mm-hmm. That being said, there is there to me is so much hypocrisy in being a person who claims to be a person of faith when it serves them right versus actually having that govern their whole life and their whole agenda and so to me we were just talking about trump's budget i don't think you can find a more faithless document than something that literally would consign people to dying on the street Mm. right um if they're immigrants if they uh make the mistake of not being born wealthy right and that's what trump's policy agenda would do and to me i just see so much hypocrisy in in wanting the pros of of faith right and not wanting to live up to what you view as the cons. Right. Well, I mean, you're, you're you're not alone among people of faith. There is a there is a religious left that is active and rising that's deeply frustrated by what they see to be hypocrisy, both in the Trump administration and among the leaders who support him. So one thing I reported out last week is there is a, a revival that's being planned in Lynchburg, Virginia, by a group of, you know, uh, progressive evangelicals, for lack of a better term, and a bunch of other progressive Christians who are going to descend on this town in, in corpora- cooperation with people who are there um, to protest what they call toxic e- evangelicalism. And there's a reason it's in Lynchburg, because that's right next to Liberty University. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, and there's, you know, they're, they're saying they're not trying to vilify Falwell, but they say that the critique of toxic evangelicalism, you know, includes like, many of his ilk. And so this frustration of, I mean, you, you've had Reverend William Barber. Um, he, he was he was kind of the head of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina that helped, you know, is credited with helping unseat a Republican governor there. You know, re- refer to these sorts of things as uh, borderline theological malpractice or something bordering on hip, um, uh, heresy. When he referred to faith leaders who were praying over Trump while supporting the kind of policies that you're you're discussing, so there is there is a groundswell of theological frustration with people who, uh, among people of faith, who see you know a very to them a very explicit hypocrisy between you know touting your your faith in one moment and then supporting policies that hurt the least of these as far as they're concerned in the next. So that's, I mean, that's, there's, there are literally people preaching that from the pulpit at this point. And we got to give a shout out to Sister Simone Campbell. Right? Oh, Amen. Also, nuns on the bus. Amen. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, literally having traveled the country multiple times trying to say this is not what a faithful budget looks like, right? Um, and these policies are not what, what people of faith should support. I, I think it's important to point that out, that there are people out there of faith who, I don't want to say... Uh, much about their politics, but their policies and what they believe are important are more in line with what I think Democrats would point to, right? Like Reverend Jim Wallace, you mentioned right. uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber, uh, Sister Simone Campbell. There are a lot of people out there that if you are a Christian and you are also horrified at what Donald Trump is doing 
with Christians and, and hiding behind Christianity the way that he is, like there are other people out there who speak to you, which is something that I think is a little underrated in the, in the, in the uh, uh, religious community because like having grown up in a very religious Southern Baptist household, right? Like I was only taught one thing, one way, right? And we, we had to go to the Billy Graham crusades and we had to read Dr. James Dobson. And we had to like listen to the things that Jerry Falwell, the older Jerry Falwell, who's no longer with us, had to say. And these are all men who, when you look back at what they said, were horrible, but also not much different than what their kids are now saying now. Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham, who are out there saying pretty terrible things. Um, I want to ask you about news of the day, because okay. this is a, a, a really interesting story that I saw this morning. Uh, Omarosa. Yep. Omarosa, who is out of the White House and on Celebrity Big Brother, last night on the show, she said, quote, can I just say this? As bad as y'all think Trump is, you should be worried about Pence. We would be begging for the days of Trump if Pence became president. That's all I'm saying. He is extreme. She goes on to say that Mike Pence, quote, believes Jesus Christ tells him to say certain things. Quote, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I but he thinks Jesus tells him to say things. I'm like, Jesus didn't say that. This guy is scary. Omarosa said that. Omarosa said that. Former White House official. Former White House official, like, just a month or so ago, but she was in more, the White House. More importantly, former uh, uh, cast member of The Apprentice. Former cast member of The Apprentice. I mean, right. look, uh, The Apprentice. Before Donald Trump said he was running for president, she had multiple tweets saying, I'm with her. Go Hillary Clinton. And then Donald Trump... Uh, ran for president. She went to him, uh, went with him, worked with him, worked in the White House, was apparently escorted out of the White House for her behavior, and now is saying these things about not only that people don't have their uh, a handle on, on Trump, but that Mike Pence believes that Jesus is speaking directly to him. Is that the way that uh, uh, government should be run, Jack? Well, um... I, I would say that— Consider that, the source, by the way. It's yeah. Omarosa. Well, I, still. I, I would say that um, I think there are quite a few Americans who would argue that the separation of church and state is such that— um, there's actually a lot of theories about this, about how this, this, actually, this encounter comes. Like, if you're a deep-abiding person of faith, which I would argue both— um, George W. Bush and Barack Obama were sure, right? Yes. Um, you know how do you, you know, how do you navigate the fact that your faith compels you to operate certain ways, and that, and and alongside the fact that there are millions of Americans who disagree with you and like you know, have a different religious tradition or have no religious tradition, um, who might be impacted by the policies that you enact. So, with Mike Pence, um, I think it's interesting because uh, I think most biographers of him at this point, many deep dives into him, do find that there is this evidence of, of a longstanding abiding faith from, from Mike Pence. It is also true that he has often conflated his political identity with his religious identity and that as one um, journalist of, who kind of studied these groups, um, a couple of them actually, um, told me, you know, he was a B and C lister yeah. several years ago, yeah. and um, suddenly it was unthinkable that he would be vice president. And now we have someone who was arguably French yeah. years ago, yeah. sitting a heartbeat away from the White House. Jack Jenkins, reporter with Religion News Service, and Rebecca Vallis, host of the Off Kilter Podcast. Thank this y'all for joining. Is the Bill Press Show.